But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed to, together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they, were, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. May the Lord bless the teaching of his word. Please be seated. I don't know if you've heard of the author Malcolm Gladwell. He is a, uh, he's very well known. He has, um, I believe, five different best-selling books. And while he is primarily a journalist, what he is known for is writing about kind of uh, social observations. He's made note, he's done research on uh, a number of social patterns and, and specifically from that, he has become known really for his first book, uh, which is The Tipping Point. You may have heard of that phrase or heard of the book, uh, The Tipping Point, but the premise of the book, The Tipping Point, and the observation that he made based on some research that he's done is that a small group of people in the right set of circumstances can actually create an entire social epidemic. And he noted that uh, in one of the examples that he gives is with hush puppy shoes. I don't know if any of you grew up wearing hush puppy shoes. Um, I may have had a pair when I was a kid, I'm not sure, uh, but I definitely remember them. And they're not high-end shoes. Hush Puppy shoes are pretty cheap shoes. And um, they're, you're not going to find them in an athletic store. You're not going to pay a lot of money for Hush Puppies. But they were around for quite a while. And then in the mid-90s, they started to decline to the point where they were nearing extinction. In fact, in the mid-90s, uh, they were only selling about 30,000 pair 
throughout the entire United States. And they were being sold in secondhand stores and mom and pop shops exclusively. But what ended up happening is a small group of people in Manhattan that happened to shop at secondhand stores. So we're talking about uh, by you know, worldly standards, a rather unexceptional group are shopping at secondhand stores in Manhattan and they're intentionally buying up the hush puppy shoes that are there. And the reason that they want to wear these shoes is because other people are not. And what they ended up doing is this small group of unexceptional people begin to wear them and it turns into a trend. And the very goal of trying to do something that was different by this small group actually ignites a fashion trend. Hush Puppy Shoes went from that particular year where they were right about at being extinct to the following year selling 430,000 pairs of shoes. And then the year after that, it quadrupled from that number. So they went in a matter of two years from 30,000 to uh, increase by a power of 5,633% based on a small group of people that wanted to wear these shoes and in the right set of circumstances ignited this kind of social epidemic. And what we see in our passage today in Acts chapter 5 verses 12 to 16 is another tipping point of sorts. We have a small group of people that are doing something and given the right set of circumstances has done something much more important, much more significant than putting more money into somebody's pocket. It's actually resulted in this giant blossom of a harvest that ends up reaping a multitude of souls into the kingdom of heaven. So we ask ourselves, well, how did this happen? What was the tipping point in this scenario in Acts 5, verses 12 to 16? How is it that it resulted into a multitude of men and women coming to the Lord? Maybe a simpler question is, where do Christian babies come from? How does this happen at all? And I want to be clear before we get specifically into those verses that we always keep in view the overarching answer to that question. The big answer to that question, of course, is that God is behind the making of Christians. And in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, this is how it reads. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there is no question that the overarching theme, that the reason that anyone, any one of us, ever becomes a Christian is ever guaranteed that promise of eternal hope is because of the triune God. And we see that in these verses, that we know that we were the ones that were foolish, that were disobedient, that were led astray, that we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. But based on the electing choice of God the Father through the obedient work of his Son, the Holy Spirit is applied and washes us clean of our sins so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And for that, of course, we say amen and amen. Thank you, Lord. Now, that being said, the question remains about this idea of the means of making Christians. We know that this triune God gets all the credit for that taking place. But God uses a particular means to make that happen. And that means is through the word of God. Someone has to bring the knowledge of our need for repentance for our sin and the substance and to communicate the substance of our saving faith and that takes place through the word of God. There's still a missing piece. If we know that it's the triune God that saves and we know that the means that he uses is the truth of his word of God, it has got to get from the word to the people. And how is that truth disseminated? And I don't mean to insult your intelligence here, but I just want to make sure that I am connecting all the dots for you. But how is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is found in the very word of God transmitted to those that need to hear it? It is through a particular instrument. And you know what that is? It is the very same people that he has saved. He uses... Christians to save Christians. God gets the credit. It is not other Christians that do the saving, but you better believe that it's other Christians that are used as the instrument of delivering the truth of the word of God to other people. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is a very basic concept. It has to be spoken. It has to be communicated. The word of God, the truth of the scripture has to be communicated. And so with that in mind, when we come to this episode here in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12, we see that taking place. Now, it's in a little bit of an unlikely way, the way that it's being communicated, but let's read verse 12 here. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of all the apostles. So maybe it doesn't look at first blush that like the apostles are actually proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because it says now many signs and wonders were regularly done among them. 
uh, among the people by the hands of the apostles. But I would suggest to you that what they are doing is bringing the power and the authority of the truth of God's word to bear on these people. What they are not doing is just trying to perform random acts of kindness. Now, anybody that has an infirmity wants to be healed. And there certainly is that benefit to those that are healed. But they are bringing the very word of God to these people along with these signs and wonders. And it's the signs and wonders that are actually pointing back to and verifying the truth of what it is that they're bringing. And I want to point out how we know that's the case. Um, in Acts 2, verse 22, Peter's in the middle of a sermon at Pentecost, and he's preaching to everybody in this sermon. He's, he's got unbelievers, he's got believers there, he's got uh, the religious leaders that, that um, oppose Christ. And this is what Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He is making the point that they, they didn't crucify him for the signs and wonders, and yet he uses the evidence, he uses the fact that Jesus performed signs and wonders as evidence for the message that he brought. And then additionally, in Acts 2, verses 42 and 43, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So we see again that it's the apostles' teaching that is always accompanying the many signs and wonders that they are performing. They're not there just to heal the lame, to give sight to the blind, to give hearing to the deaf. They are there to deliver a message that saves souls, and it's those acts, those miraculous acts that they were performing that verified the message that they were delivering that has to do and has this connection to the apostles' teaching. And then one more in Acts 4, verses 13 to 16, it's the same thing that's laid before the religious leaders. And they testify, essentially, to their own guilt in all of this because they say in Acts 4, verses 13 to 16, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So when these apostles are carrying out these many signs and wonders, 
we can know with confidence that they are not just showing up to, to improve people's day. They are there to improve the, their eternal destiny. They are bringing the apostles' teaching and even the religious leaders that are stridently opposed to what they are doing cannot possibly deny what's taking place because of the signs and wonders. We cannot deny it. So if we know that the means that these apostles are using to, or that God is using through the apostles to create spiritual children, to create Christians, and we know that it's the fact that they are bringing the power and the authority of God to bear on them by using miraculous signs and wonders to confirm the teaching that they are providing, then the next thing we want to look at as it relates to the means is the location. It's that second half of verse 12. I'll just start from the beginning of verse 12 again. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico is also the place where the Gentiles were allowed to be when you come close to the temple. It's an open court. It would probably be the largest area that um, is near the temple. Also, it's basically the only area near the temple where anybody is allowed to go. So in other words, even the Gentiles were allowed to be near the temple. But I don't know if you've thought about this, but remember, it's the apostles that, that accompanied Jesus when Jesus uh, was going, when he was headed up toward the temple and he was going to end up uh, overturning tables and everything. And you remember they came to the fig tree and he curses the fig tree and he's pointing out the future of the temple in the cursing of the fig tree. All of these things are pointing toward the end of the temple era. It's only a few verses later in the gospel accounts where the apostles themselves say, wow, hey Jesus, check out that temple. Doesn't that temple look pretty good? And Jesus tells them, <laughs> well, not one stone is going to be left on another of this temple. I mean, Jesus is clearly laying it out. That temple right there that you're looking at has no future, no lasting future. Your hope is not in that temple. So they don't understand that in its entirety, but they've heard the words. But at this point, though, you have to bear in mind they have since then witnessed the humiliation, the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension and they have had a visitation by a couple of angels and on top of that they have experienced Pentecost and received the gift of the Holy Spirit and they now understand what it is that Jesus had said about the future of the temple. And here they are in this particular space historically where Jesus has told them the temple era on the other side of his death, burial, and resurrection, that temple area era is done. Your hope is no longer in that. And yet, the temple is still standing, right? It isn't gone yet. So why do the apostles go to the temple? 
it's the hope is not in the temple. They're not going into the temple to participate in the priestly acts that have been done for centuries in that temple or, you know, its representative that have, been, that have taken place in the tabernacle in the first temple and now the second temple. And yet that's where they go to bring the message that essentially says this, your hope is not in this temple. And the answer to the question is really quite simple. They've got the antidote, and that's where the people that are sick are located. If they're going to bring to bear the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ, why would you not go where the people that need it are located? That's where they can gain an audience. And this says something to us. Don't we bump up in our lives against people that have a need? We carry with us the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are in regular contact with people that are in need. What is our response when we have the antidote in our hearts, when we are the temple of God, when we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit itself, and we are looking at somebody that is in dire need of that antidote. How do you respond? Well, we get a sense of what that response is in verse 13. Now, this is kind of interesting. In Acts 5, verse 13, we have a little bit of a who's on first scenario. In verse 12, notice, okay, as far as trying to figure out who the groups are here and who the pronouns are relating to, when you look at verse 12, there are some that are very clear. Well, you have, well, um, the signs and wonders are being, doing, are being done regularly among the people, so you've got the people, and then it's, they're being done by the apostles, so you've got the apostles, there's another group, but then it says, and they we're all together in Solomon's portico. So you go, okay, well, who are the they? And then in verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So you can see how it gets a little bit messy there when you see that there, are, there is a they, there is a them, um, and I think most difficult there is the word rest. Like, who, who are the none of the rest? Well, I would suggest that there are three different groups. And the first group is the apostles themselves. We know right there from verse 12. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among them or among the people by the hands of the apostles. And then when you get in, in that second half of verse 12, and it says, and they... We're all together in Solomon's portico. You have to ask yourself, is that they the people or is that they the apostles? And I would suggest that that's the apostles. And I think that's because in the previous account that was read for us, it was about Ananias and Sapphira, and it, had, it was very specifically limited to Peter's experience, right? They came before Peter, and this account uh, breaks down with Peter, and then we get to verse 12, where what's being communicated is that all of these signs and wonders are being, t are being 
performed at the hands of the apostles, and now we have all of them, they, the apostles, are together in Solomon's portico. The other reason that uh, we can see that is that in this, in verse 13, is because in that second half there it says, but the people held them in high esteem. So if you have your choice between the, if the they is going to be the apostles or it's going to be the people, those that are held in high esteem, it's going to be the apostles. I'm hoping that I didn't completely confuse you by that. So we have they, so let me insert the group that I'm talking about, and the apostles were all together in Solomon's portico. Of course, the second group that we have is the fact that there are all of these people that are holding them in high esteem, and we also see then in verse 14 that some of them, we know that some of them are unbelievers because in verse 14 it says that, that believers were added. So we have this mixture of, or, uh, uh, within the people of those that were not believers. So here is the big question in verse 12. When it says none of the rest dared join them, who are the rest? The rest of whom? Who is it that's not daring to join them? I suggest it's believers. It's not the apostles, of course. The apostles are all together. And, and yet we also have believers, this second group, that are holding the apostles in high esteem. And yet you have the rest that did not dare to join them. And let me show you why I believe that's the case. Look right back up to verse 11, which is actually the last verse of the account of Ananias and Sapphira. It reads, and great fear, and look, up, look at the two groups that this is referring to, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It makes perfect sense that something as dramatic as what takes place with Ananias and Sapphira when they drop dead and are dragged out and buried, that that word would certainly spread. And where would it spread? It would spread throughout the whole church and to anyone else that heard about it. Now you transition down into the account that begins at verse 12. You have all of the apostles were together. After that, you're going to have the people that are going to be added, but between there you have none of the rest. I would say none of the other Christians, none of the others that were within the church dared join the apostles. See, you have the apostles boldly proclaiming the testimony of the promise of Christ, and you have people within the church that are keeping them at a distance and that are not immediately wanting to be identified with the apostles. The react, their initial reaction was fear. Does this describe you? If you are with other people, you know that you carry the antidote. You are in proximity to people that are in need. And the very word of God comes up. The situation is ripe for the picking. Maybe even somebody else is in. It is so ripe that you have somebody else that's a fellow believer there and brings the topic up, talks about Jesus. They name names. They 
proclaim a verse is your initial reaction to be identified with the word of God. You're there. The needy person is there. Do you find your initial reaction to be one that wants to distance? Are you in that group that says, I didn't really dare to join them? Or could you be named with, in this case, the apostles that are confidently proclaiming the word of God and the truth of Scripture? And of course, I'm preaching to myself here as well. I can absolutely recount times where I cowered. You remember those old toys with um, those little wood toys that have the elastic little thing in them and then you push the bottom and they just kind of, yeah, I've done that. Christ comes up and it's like pushing the bottom and I crumble, you know, fold like a wet napkin. But that is not our identity. We cannot be fearful. We cannot put the identity, our identity, with Christ at a distance. Well, because we know the very means of, of, that God uses of creating, uh, uh, of giving new birth to Christians is through the truth of the word of God and that the instrument that he uses are other believers, then when those are faithful in doing those very things and serving as that instrument, then we also see here what the impact can be. In verse 14, it says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Could there be a better impact? Could there be a, a more significant result than just being faithful with identifying with the Lord and sharing the truth of the word of God? And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. That is impact number one. And then we see where it goes from there. Not only more than ever believers were added to the Lord, but multitudes of both men and women. And then it transitions into verse 15 where it says, so that. In other words, that, that phrase there demonstrates that there was a result after they were converted. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. You realize at this point, just, just one verse later, these people went from holding the apostles in high esteem to becoming believers to now becoming believers that take action. These aren't just believers that go, hey, you know, I think maybe it has been a while since I've been in church and I ought to show back up in church and things like that. These are people whose lives have been completely changed to the point that they are not only added to the Lamb's book of life, but they are taking action themselves to show uh, obedience and honor to the Lord and then we see in verse 16 that ripple effect that takes place from there. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Are you thinking through everything that's happening here? We have apostles 
that are bringing the truth to people that have a need, do you think that when they showed, well, I mean, we just have to speculate here, when they showed up that they knew, hey, we're heading out for a big day today, boys, you know, let's bring it in, you know, we got a big one, because when we head down there to Solomon's portico and share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this thing's going to go bonkers. Or is this more of a tipping point scenario where they say, to God be the glory, whatever it is that he chooses to do, he's going to do, we're just going to go down there and we're going to be faithful with the job that he has given to us, which for the apostles is their teaching and also happens to be the, the, uh, the um, performance of signs and wonders. And based on their faithfulness, the impact was that a multitude of people were brought into the kingdom and those people turned into believers that actually took action and then those people rippled out into the surrounding towns of Jerusalem as well. Now, I, I understand and I acknowledge there is something unique going on in the early church. We cannot possibly, we're not trying to replicate something like a, a system, like, hey, look the way they did it, let's, let's replicate that so that we get the same results. That The results are not our, our responsibility, but that doesn't change the fact that the means that God uses to create Christian babies is still the same, which is the truth of the word of God being delivered by faithful Christians to those that are in need. The apostles were faithful. God used the seeds of their commitment. They were casting those seeds to share the promise of the gospel message to give birth to multitude of Christians. And this is, this is how I want to finish, is I want to bring this back around where I started. Some of you are familiar with the phrase, the golden chain of salvation. It uh, comes out of Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. And the, the, the phrase, the golden chain of salvation, it's used to describe the, the, the theological order of events that takes place when a person becomes a Christian. So in Romans 8, 29, it reads, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And we have this chain continuing on in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's why it's called this uh, chain of the, the chain of salvation. So we can never, as I began, we can never lose sight of the fact that God is the one that actually makes people Christians. We cannot deny that it says he, so God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorifies. It's all God. But here's the reason that I wanted to go to this, is not only to remind you of who gets all the credit, because that's a very, that's a, in, in a lot of circles, that's a very common 
set of verses to memorize and to discuss and to write full papers and have these deep theological thoughts. But I want to connect this concept of everything that's going on in the creation of this new birth to what it says in the very next verse. If all of this is true, that God does all of those things to create spiritual children, to make Christians, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That description goes hand in hand with the assurance to us, not just about our individual future because we have been saved for these reasons listed in this golden chain of salvation, but this has an impact on the way that you live as a Christian because the means that this God that does all of those things to save people uses are other Christians. You are those other Christians and serve as the instrument to bring the truth of God's gospel message so that more will be saved. And now, based on all of that, you need not be that group that did not dare to join. There is no hesitation that should be there. Instead, knowing this, you can say, what then shall I say to these things? If God is for me, who can be against me? So, as you leave here today, you know that you can have that confidence. You know that you've been called to serve as that instrument. You are the means that God uses. It's you and me, for sure. I've been called to do the thing I'm doing now, which is to stand in this pulpit and to proclaim the gospel of Christ, but it does not end there. I have the same responsibility when I walk out of here as each of you do, which is to carry that same truth to a world that's essentially at Solomon's portico that are full of needs and need Christ and that you have. And we are responsible to be that means, to be that instrument, to take that truth. And be reminded, not only do you have nothing to fear, remember the impact that it could have based on God's providence, that he could, because of your faithfulness, save another man, save another woman, plant the seeds for a child to later become a child of God, who then also goes out and faithfully proclaims the word of God and has this ripple effect. You have no idea, and you may never know, and you don't need to know the impact, but you can know that that is exactly how it works. And by knowing how it works, you can go confidently into the world, serving as that instrument and never being the one that did not dare to join them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this example that the apostles set. We know that it's not because we revere these men in, in some um, supernatural way. We're just grateful that you used men to serve as the foundation of the church, and that's what they were doing. And in their faithfulness, you used them to expand your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us in the same way 
not by exercising signs and wonders, but by proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would dare to be identified with you, that we would not just hold your word in high esteem, but that we would be Christians of action, leaving the impact and the effects to you and uh, according to your good plan. And we say all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.